Hello, everyone. Uh, just Eric here. We're actually not recording this episode for about another 15 real-time minutes, but I wanted to jump on before the episode started for two reasons. One, you can tell by the episode title that we're talking about the Donner Party today. Inevitably, you can't talk about the Donner Party without talking about cannibalism. So we're putting a listener discretion warning on the episode right up front. I do keep that section to a minimum, but it does need to be talked about. So uh, with that said, one of the sources that I used was called The Indifferent Stars Above. And honestly, fantastic book. You really should get it. It's not very long. Highly recommend it. And in it, the author focuses on a woman named Sarah Graves. And that's actually who I'm going to tell Matt who we're covering today. I won't actually mention the Donner Party until a couple hundred words into the narrative. So if you're confused on why I haven't mentioned the Donners, it's because I'm kind of doing a reveal on him. So with that said, um, future Matt, you're listening to this while editing. If you could just hit the music now. Welcome back to Ranking 76, where we are ranking the heroes and villains of the American West. I am Eric. And I'm Matt. And today it's kind of a deep cut, because I hadn't really heard of this woman before until I started researching her episode. Today we're talking about Sarah Graves. Oh, I know her. No, you don't. Yeah. You don't? Yeah, I do. It's Sarah Graves. Yeah, what'd you do? She was born in Mississippi. Nope. I'm joking. I just wanted to see what you'd say. Uh, good, old, good old Mrs. Graves. Uh, Miss, Miss, Mrs. Fosdick, actually. But that's that's fine. Um, she gets so. All right. Let's just get right into her episode. And do you know how typically we don't have a lot on people's uh, childhood sometimes? Like Billy the Kid really don't have anything confirmed. Her story, like the her whole childhood we don't know much about her adult life. <laughs> <laughs> Just the opposite. This, uh, this episode is actually five seconds long. <laughs> so she was born, and uh, so let's rank her. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> how, how hard was her labor? <laughs> so Sarah, we barely even have a birthday for her. So she was born around 1825. And I'm sure she had a childhood full of fun memories. In fact, her and her father and their family moved around a lot. But she's now 20 years old and she's about to get married. So, geez. So there's no information. There's no almost no information from the time she's born. 1825, you said to not really about her. 20 years old. Not really about her. It's okay. more about her family moving around. So Franklin Graves is her father. They just kind of. They kind of hop from town to town, have a few, a uh, few different farms, so on and so forth. Where I guess back then, I mean, obviously there might not be a lot if they're moving around quite a bit, right. records and all that jazz. And especially with women, it's not like 
it's not that they don't care. It's just not a lot gets written down about women. So, right. Whereas someone while Bill Hickok, he tends to get interviewed and talks about his childhood more. Uh, someone like Sarah Graves, not, not so much initially. So anyway, she's 20 years old and Sarah's father, Franklin wants to move across country for all of the reasons that we've talked about in this podcast, new opportunity, cheap land, but specifically his wife, Elizabeth, Sarah's mother is sickly. So they think California may be a really good place for her to be drier air, all of that. Franklin also reads a guidebook called the immigrant's guide to California and Oregon. And he get, and they basically talk it up as if it's a, an Eden. It is 1846. So we haven't even invented gold yet. So they're really trying to push people to go out West. California started seeing immigration as early as the panic of 1837, basically when all of the banks collapse and a drought in the middle of the country didn't hurt either. Even in the guidebook, Everything is great. And just as a big selling point, a lot of the quote savages, they're already dead. That was one of the selling points. <laughs> uh, highlight, uh, all the savages are dead. Yeah. So, I mean, now's the perfect time, perfect time to make your way to paradise. All you got to do is step over the bodies and that's all. I just keep thinking every time you say the guidebook, I just keep thinking like that's the very first travel book. So like what guy is writing this, you know? Huh, okay, yeah, here's my travel tips. Mm -hmm. Four-star resort here next to this tree. <laughs> oh, I'd love to see the Yelp page for it. Sarah herself isn't sure if she wants to go with her family because she really loves this boy named Jay. It's not really know how long that they date before, but they definitely have an ultimatum for each other. Initially, Sarah isn't going to go which means basically she's going to be marrying Jay if she stays because she's the whole reason she's going to stay. Is that a common thing um, in that time? Do you know, like when a daughter, because when a daughter would marry, they wouldn't typically stick with the family, would they? No, but Sarah doesn't like the thought of possibly never seeing her family again. Right. I mean, once you move out west, right. it's... So it really comes down to if Jay and her want to get married and if Jay is willing to come out West with her and he is so hip, hip, hooray, they get married the same day that Sarah's father sells the farm and they load up their wagon. So this is just boom, 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 pretty quick. I now pronounce your husband and wife. Let's hit the road. Now granted, there's probably a little bit more time. This is probably a month couple decision, but right. it's, it's force on them. If, if Sarah's going to go with them, she has to go, like Jay's going to have to come with, if Jay's coming with, they're getting married. If Sarah's staying, they're getting married. If Jay stays and she goes, that's the only reason they're breaking up. So they've decided they're young. They're in love. They're going to go for it. Sarah's father then loads up their wagon. The wagons you would anticipate like loading up all of your belongings and you do to an extent. But really, when you're moving out west, they're starting in Illinois and they're going to go all the way to California, right? It is a six-month journey, and it's about 2,500 miles from Independence to California. Hard travel. You're going to load up oxen. You're going to take as many cattle as you can or as you have or are you willing to travel with. 
and the rest you're going to load up provisions. You're really just worried about the next six months and can we get there rather than are we going to take every picture we have in the house? Do we have room to take the rocking chair? All of that stuff. So you kind of leave the you kind of leave the stuff that uh, isn't essential. You're starting over, like you really are. But did they make the same mistake that a lot of these people made and leave? When it's turning winter. Nope. They leave on time. And that was actually my next oh, note. Perfect. Is if this isn't a Royce Oatman. This is they're leaving on time. And again, just like in the Oatman's episode, you want to leave so that your cat, your oxen who are pulling your cart across the country are able to make it that there's plenty of grass to graze. And basically you're going to treat them. Well, the oxen are not only the motor, they're the transmission and basically they're the fuel. If your oxen are yeah, abused, they die. Yeah, you're, you're done. You're not in great. Just to show you how much they meant uh, to be good to your oxen, a lot of people would actually jump out of the wagon and they would walk along beside it. They wouldn't even ride in it. Right, to lighten the load. Lighten the load. Um, yeah. Not put so much strain. Exactly. The Graves leave in April 1846. There's some difficulty in Illinois because it's raining. The trail turns into mud. That's going to be pretty common on the way there. Their first destination, uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, or called St. Joe's, they're going to be the one of over 500 wagons that will start the journey across the continent. Do you remember Red Cloud's episode? Yes. Eh, yes, I do. This is basically that exact same timeline. This is the other side of the coin they are they are one of those wagons that that red cloud is getting irate about yes he is yes he is also uh on their way there we're not there yet but i'll stump ahead a little bit in the notes um again if your oxen are a little bit overbearing not only will you start walking outside you're just going to start dumping your furniture out the side of the wagon hey red cloud Here's an entire furniture set for you. Basically turning this pristine landscape into a landfill. Essentially. Why are they so angry? I don't understand. Yeah, you have just a couch chilling in the river. <laughs> I mean. But it does make sense. Like the stuff you thought you could keep if your oxen aren't making it. I mean, sorry, it's got to go. Yes. To show you how serious they were, Lucy Ann Henderson would recall a story of a man not wanting to give up a rolling pin. Basically, <sighs> this man was coveting this his mother's rolling pin. It was the last thing he had to remember his mother who made biscuits for him. And apparently they were very, very good biscuits. And he just wanted to save the rolling pin. You will never be able to make as good of biscuits unless you have the correct rolling pin. My mother's rolling pin. It is a magical rolling pin. And they wouldn't let him keep it. It weighs like two pounds, too, not even. Too heavy. Not only oh wouldn't they let him keep it. I'll hold it. I'll hold it. I'll hold the dang thing. I will lose two pounds and I will negate out the weight. Uh, not only will they not let him keep it. They also christen him Rolling Pin Smith for the rest of his life. So they even openly mock him for doing it. 
Come on, Rowan Pin. Mom. <laughs> those biscuits, those milky, crusty, flaky biscuits. Wouldn't let him do it. You're not tiring out the oxen. St. Joseph's is about 60 miles away from the better known Independence, Missouri. Independence, Missouri, the same place you take off during the Oregon Trail. FYI, we're kind of going on the Oregon Trail today. Dun, 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 dun. Don't get dysentery. <laughs> I wanted to make the dysentery joke and <laughs> took it from me. <laughs> but that's fine. Independence is a starting spot for most emigrants on the Oregon Trail to California. It's here, sometime between Independence, Missouri, and St. Joe's, where the graves are, that they hear the U.S. and Mexico are now at war. We're in that time period. That's going to become important later. St. Joe's for the graves is, might be the last places you're going to see an actual doctor with an actual degree. Not that that means much in 1846, but it's not. your wife's sick. Your wife hey. is sick. That's true. They also get plenty of advice from scouts who are already going to Oregon. They hear that Walla Walla tribes are on the attack for emigrants, as you do. They also hear that a scout from Oregon might be trying to start a new route with his immigrants guide to Oregon and California. So that same guide that Sarah's father is holding, it actually is telling of a shortcut that you can actually use for the Oregon Trail. They get to Independence on time. And from here, we're going to start our journey from 2,500 miles that crosses the Great Plains with three different mountain ranges and multiple deserts. This is a long haul. The goal is to get to the Sierra Nevada mountains before snow can block the route. Typically, November. They're leaving in April. So you have five months, five, six months to get there. Do they have to wait? If, if they get there too late, do they just have to wait it out? No. We'll get into it in just a second. <laughs> oh, no. They, they ain't making it. They ain't making it. Trail life can get obviously very repetitive. In the morning, you would wake up and round up any loof livestock that wandered away during the night. You would yoke up the oxen. Someone would brew tea and coffee, and you would sit around the fire for breakfast. You would leave early in the morning after coffee, travel for an hour or two, then have lunch. You allow your cattle to graze, make a real quick meal, and then continue for another couple hours. If you strained your oxen before you get to Fort Laramie, which is really the second main checkpoint that you're going to, you're taking severe risk of them not being able to pull you all the way to California, which puts you in danger of running into early snowfall into the Sierra Nevadas. You would almost never butcher your cattle or oxen because you need them in emergencies or for in your new life of California. So think as the oxen, obviously, that's your motor to get there. Your cattle are kind of like your walking currency. Not only can you live off of them during the trail, but the more that you have when you settle, you can sell cattle, you can sell beef, you can now basically set up your farm. After you leave Independence, Missouri, you're leaving territory United States. Like we talked about, there are no doctors, and there's only a few trading posts around the way. Most would team up, and by most, I mean almost everyone except for Royce Oatman, is going to team up with other wagon trains to help protect yourself. The trails would commonly lead a leader 
that would decide what directions to take. The leader would take on a bigger role as the country gets drier, grass becomes more scarce, especially between Independence and Fort Laramie. To help preserve as much grass for oxen as you could, you would actually use dried manure chips as fuel for your fires when there were no trees in the Great Plains. The goal was to get to Fort Laramie by the 4th of July, if possible. If you're, got, if you're on time near a, within a week of the 4th of July at Fort Laramie, you're looking good. The fort is not the military post it will become because Red Cloud isn't as thoroughly angry as he's going to be yet. The Shut Sioux up, haven't Laramie. had time to get angry. This is the time where they're building up. They're looking at him with severe side eye, like counting 500 wagons. What is this fort? Yes. So don't think of it as a military post. It's really, think of a bunch of lemonade stands surrounded by walls. It's not really all that much established. The Grazes reach Fort Laramie two days ahead of schedule. Woo! Let's go! Let's go! Soon after they leave Fort Laramie, Sarah's sister Marianne and her brother Billy are just kind of traveling alone. And as they pass, they're actually approached by a couple of Sioux men. The Sioux men are apparently taken by Marianne's beauty. And they offer to buy Marianne from her brother. Oh no! How old is your brother? <laughs> as a younger brother myself, the urge not to sell my sister, <laughs> who I think we can all agree is a tyrant. All big sisters are tyrants. However, he does fight off the urge, and he will not sell his older sister to the Sioux. Marianne. I was going to say, how old is this kid? Is if he's like thirteen? Mm, give me, I don't know, a couple bucks. She's yours. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what? She's free. She's all yours. What do you do? <laughs> you know what? We don't want her. We don't want her anyways. On July 17th, a letter from a man named Lansford W. Hastings arrives. The writer urges anyone to meet Hastings at Fort Bridger to take his new shortcut to California. When the party approaches the little Sandy River, they will need to decide if they actually want to take the shortcut or not. They literally take three days to decide if you're oh going to use the shortcut or not. So there goes, they're ahead of schedule. Uh, <laughs> now they're a day behind. Do you ever, like, I, I know it's it's always fun, funny to make fun of men, like, around any construction project where they're just, like, pointing and, like, that's what I pictured for three days. There has been times where I've been with groups that are, we just, you just stand around going, okay, huh. That's going to happen, guys. Very uh, thorough. You got to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> you just keep pointing, pointing to the, pointing to the stuff on the, the table, you know? Huh? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the wives are probably like furiously tapping their feet and like arms crossed. Like, are you freaking flip a coin? Boys? I just don't see how one person doesn't go, guys, can we hurry this up? I mean, you have a deadline. You have to get to a place. Right. There's no. We're literally on a timeline here, guys. Like I don't know. I if keep you thinking. Tell. I keep thinking. If you tell me they take the shortcut, that ain't gonna be a shortcut. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand why you would think that. This is just a treasurely, uh, a casual stroll across the United States during the 1840s. Well, they decide to take the shortcut. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! 
So the Graves family, along with 20 other wagons that contain approximately 90 other men and women, they choose left for Fort Bridger and they choose the Hastings cutoff. So do you remember Hastings from right away? He was the one who actually wrote the Emigrant's Guide to California. He's the one that wrote that book. Wrote the shortcut. Wrote yeah, the shortcut. he wrote the shortcut in there, yeah. So because they broke off from the main wagon, they're now away from the traditional route. They need to elect a new leader. And they elect a man named James Reed. James Reed is with another family. Two brothers, in fact. Their last name is Donner. Oh, no. No. Oh, no. No. That's no. right. We're oh, really talking no. about the Donner party today. Oh, no. Yeah. That's the proper reaction. Yes. So the Donners have had a pretty similar journey to the Grazes so far. They leave on April 16th, 1846 from Springfield, Illinois. Two brothers, Jacob and George Johnner, along with James Reed. James Reed, uh, kind of one of those aristocratic, semi-wealthy, I'm better than you kind of guy. Uh, they leave with nine wagons, moving for the typical reasons, land opportunity, blah, 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 blah. They get to Independence, Missouri about the second week in May and leave on May 12th. Two days after leaving uh, Independence, this is where they hear that America and Mexico are now at war. A thunderstorm delays them for a couple days. Uh, the trail turns into mud, but for the most part, it's pretty smooth sailing, with the exception of Margaret Reed's mother and James Reed's mother-in-law passes away. Old age, just it just happened. They get to Fort Laramie, and they're only about a week behind. Fort Laramie, by the way, is really the last opportunity you have to stop to turn around. It's the last place to get provisions. After you get to Fort Laramie, there's no going back. You either, well, you can go back, but. Not really. After Fort Laramie, you've made the decision. You're not oh, going no, to no. Laramie. After you leave Fort Laramie, there's yeah. no turning back. Yes. I thought you meant once you get to Fort Laramie, you have two options. You can turn around and go back or that's you exactly can go it. forward and that's it. That's exactly it. Those are your only two options. Fort Laramie is the last place to restock up either for the journey back. You don't want to do this anymore, or you can make this to California. So they just select James Reed as their captain. We're going to leave them there for just a second. And we're going to talk about Lansing's W. Hastings, the man who wrote the Emigrant's Guide to, to California and Oregon. Gold has not yet been discovered when Hastings first travels to California, which is now 1842, when he arrives there. Also, when the Donners are going, gold still hasn't been found yet. They're just going for the opportunity. Hastings is an ambitious type, and it's kind of more than a whisper that California one day will be part of the United States. It's just a matter of when. It's half of the reason the United States went to war with Mexico. And by half, I mean pretty much the whole reason. Hastings would love to be a big deal and possibly just be the governor. Wouldn't that be the worst thing in the world? So how does he make himself stand out? He makes a guidebook. How does he get people to really know he's the one that brought him here? He's going to make a shortcut. As an alternative to the Oregon Trail standard route through the Idaho Snake River Plain, 
he proposes a new direction to California across the Great Basin, which would take travelers through the Wasatch Range and then cross the Great Salt Lake Desert and rejoin the road to California. He believes it will cut around 350 miles from the trip. So he looks at a map. He finds his route, talks to someone about it. What do you think of this route? They're like, no, I think it's possible, but we don't really know until we try it. And Hastings goes, nah, let's just publish. So you said there's a chance? Good enough for me. That's it. Hit the publisher's note. With the other gentleman saying, are you sure? Because you might want to see what it's like going through a mountain range and dry lake beds, a literal desert. Now we'll figure out those details later. It'll be fine. Publish the book. This is the book that Franklin Graves and James Reed have been reading probably countless times across their trip from the journey. So Hastings publishes his book, and in May 1846, now he believes it might be time to figure out how well his his route is going to be. But he's going to start in California, go across the Sierra Nevada mountains. He's basically taking the reverse journey. Getting through the Sierras was a pain in the butt because they haven't had their, their spring runoff yet. But he does get through. So then he goes through the Salt Lake Desert. Along with him is a man named James Kleiman, who was a well-respected mountain man trader type in the area. By the time they pass through the desert, Kleiman sits down with Hastings at a campfire and they discuss the Hastings shortcut. Kleiman believes that the route might be shorter, but it's promised to be a much harder traveling route than the previous route. As in, this really isn't going to be much of a shortcut. The two men argue over a night and throughout the next day. Stubbornly, Hastings has the party leave for the Wasatch Mountain Range towards his shortcut. Turns out Kleiman was very correct. It's almost impossible to pass through. The first couple days, soon the grass for the oxen becomes stairs, and then the terrain becomes rockier and harder to steer over. Hastings then sends out his messenger to Fort Bridger saying, or to Fort Laramie saying, won't someone please take my route? Climbing isn't far behind the messenger, and Climbing and Reed actually know each other. So Climbing just went through this cutoff, says it was basically terrible. James Reed meets with Climbing, and Reed really wants to take this route, probably because they just spent three days talking about if they needed to take a shortcut or not. Well, I mean, we are, we already talked about it so much. We might as well just do it. <laughs> I think that's typical guy. Typical guy solution. Well, I mean, are we going to sit here and talk about it, or are we just going to do it? I think they played rock paper scissors best to a hundred, and then forgot count, and then they just kept Gary going again. You know what? Yeah, let's just go. Let's just let's just do it, guys. Yolo. Maybe this is the first instance of Yolo, <laughs> right? I can just see that guy being like, wait, you want to take what path? No, man, I just did that. No, dude, no. no. I think it'll be all right, though. I think it'll be all right. Yes, Kleiman said, quote, I told him about the Great Desert and the roughness of the Sierras. The straight route might turn out to be impracticable. I told him to take the regular wagon route and never leave it. It is barely (laughs) possible to get through it 
and it might be impossible if you don't. Seriously, James, stay on the route. (laughs) Whatever you do, don't leave the route. Stay on there forever. So they take a left and they take the route. (laughs) If this isn't an omen, I don't know what is. While traveling, 13-year-old Eddie Breen breaks his leg when his horse steps into a prairie dog's burrow. The horse falls in, throws the boy from the horse, and he breaks his he breaks his leg in multiple places. And they need to send for help at Fort Bridger. It takes a couple days. When they return, it's an old mountain man with apparently a really long white beard with stained tobacco juice in, in his beard. <laughs> exactly who you want tending to your medical needs. Do you I'm know exactly- here to help? And just always has his spittoon. <laughs> he actually tied it in his beard and he just drags it around him like three feet back. Hey, hence the tobacco stains. Hence the tobacco stains. It all comes together. The mountain man thinks like, seriously, this is going to have infection. Probably need to amputate the leg. And if it wasn't for the 13 year old boy pleading for him to stop, he probably would have. But his parents pay the mountain $5 for his time. And they send him away. They then place the boy in the back of their wagon. A wagon, by the way, about to go through a mountain range that has less than zero suspension. Yeah, not not going to be pleasant for the boy. Did they even support it with anything? Put some sticks together? And... That I don't know. They did set the bone the best they okay. could. And does oh, it matter? Right? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I was picturing in my head, like maybe they slung it for, like maybe they attached it to the roof of the wagon from like a sling and let it dangle, but that wouldn't be better. You're going to be violently shaking. I think you just lay in the wagon as much as you can. So anyway, when they get to Fort Bridger, Hastings isn't actually there when he promised that he would be at Fort Bridger to show them the way. Instead, he left instructions saying anybody who wants to take the route, come this way. I'll meet you. I'll meet you going into the the Wasatch Mountain Range. Hastings is now discovering his route isn't passable in any route that he's going to take. It simply isn't going to work. Even the route he's trying to find his way has large boulders, overhanging rocks, narrow ledges, dead-end canyons. Basically, there's no way to go through. Not knowing this, the Donner-Reed party start off initially making 10 to 12 miles a day getting into the Wasatch Mountain Range. On the first week of August, they see a note from Hastings at a place called Echo Canyon. And let me just summarize the note for you real quick. They open it up and it says, bad idea. Just, nope. Seriously, this this is dumb, guys. Turn right around. No. In reality, the note tells them that Hastings is farther ahead trying to find a better route. I'll come back for you when I am ready to show you the different way. So they waited for a boy to, to reset his leg, a broken leg. And now they have to wait five more days before they go find Hastings. James Reed is basically pushed out by the party saying, go find this man because seriously, tick, tick, time is wasting. Right. Reed finds Hastings. Hastings refuses to come back (laughs) because um, he can't find a way. But don't worry. Do you see this tall hill up here? Let's go to the top of this hill. Hastings 
and Reed stand at the top of the hill and Hastings points at a route he thinks they can use. And then he tells James Reed to go back to his party and to uh, to go. So he just went, mm, that one. Yes. James Reed, they don't have any choice. There's no turning around. Try turning around 20 wagons in the middle of a mountain range. Good luck. Travel grinds for the wagon train to as slow as two miles a day. They have to cut themselves out of almost every turn and what turns out to be a mini forest. Because they're committed to this route, again, they've gone too far. They leave the mountain range on August 22nd, which it takes them 16 days to make 35 miles. Jeez. They are way behind now. They're behind. Dangerously behind. But they're out of the mountain range. They just have to get through dry salt beds. They travel three nights and the land starts turning into deserts. And then they come up around another note. Let me summarize this note for you. They open it up and it says, really bad idea. Seriously? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) You've done effed up. (laughs) In reality, the note says, two days, two nights, driving hard across the deserts, reach water. So they gather up as much grass and as much water as they can, and they head out towards the Salt Lake Desert. How long did the note say that they were going to take? Two days and two nights. Uh, Two days and two nights. Well, on the third day, water runs out. So that tells you how well it's going. Oxen are struggling to pull the wagon through the sand, which appears to be dry on the surface, but when you actually attempt to travel across it, they sink down and they sometimes sink down to the hull of the wagon. Literally the bottom of the wagon sometimes. Do they have to dig it out then? Yeah. And pull it. (laughs) 20 wagons worth. Oh my god. Next! Next! (laughs) How well do you think those oxen are doing at this point? What do you want to do? they're, They're... Are they almost dead or what? You can't pull anything else out. Remember back, remember back when they had solid ground and they were throwing furniture out to try and protect them. Yeah. There's nothing. Nothing There's nothing they can do. They can just gut through these oxen are dead tired already. In order to save some of their energy, they actually start traveling at night. But even at night, uh, some of the oxen wander off trying to search for water. The oxen, the cattle, anything, anything to go get water. James Reed oxen run off sometime during this. He has no oxen. He has no cattle. He has nothing. He has to rely on the kindness of the party, the party that he told to take this cutoff on to get to California. To make matters worse, while they're in the desert, they can look at the Sierra Nevada mountains and they can see that it's gaining snow, which is typical for the time of year. It's just that's how far they are. 
after five days of travel, they finally leave the salt desert. Exhausted. 36 oxen are lost. Many men and women nearly die from dehydration. Quote, an inventory of provisions is taken, and it was found that the supply was not sufficient to last us through the California. So they then have to send a relief party to go get supplies from California and bring them back to the party so they can continue. They're still going to travel. race ahead. Yeah. They're going to send a smaller party ahead to get provisions to bring it back to the older party. Not great. Finally, on September 26th, the Donner Party reaches the Humboldt River, which is where the the shortcut rejoined the old trail. So finally, they're back on the road that they left off of. Days, days later. The good news is, when they enter the road, no wagons are seen because they're so far ahead, right? (laughs) I was just thinking that. They see the tracks of all the wagons <laughs> decided to go right instead of left, right? Mm. Yep. I'd, I'd like to think there's a lot of passive aggressive notes being left there like, hey, idiots. What do you think of your shortcut now? Um, the rest of the wagons had been in California for nearly a week. The Donners still have about 200 miles to go. Oh my god! So every uh, the rest of the party made it already, or the party they left the wagons, the wagon yeah. like yeah. The normal. Uh, the five 500- they would have stayed right. They would have already been there. Four hundred and eighty wagons have made it. The twenty that took this route have not made it. This shortcut's the best. Yeah, it's just the best shortcut. On October fifth, the Graves wagon becomes entangled with James Reed wagon. The Graves's driver, John Snyder began beating the oxen with the butt of his whip when Reed rushed to Snyder to stop him from beating the oxen. Snyder responded by hitting Reed on the head with his whip, the same thing he was doing with his oxen. Reed then reaches for his hunting knife. When Snyder raises his arm again to strike Reed, Reed drives his knife into Snyder's chest. Well, I mean, he's dead. (laughs) Snyder is able to stagger a few yards, stagger a few yards before he dies. Reed is then effectively taken into protective custody by his friends because people were already angry at him. And this doesn't help. Many in the wagon train believe it's just straight up murder. To show you how angry they were, one man takes his wagon tongue and points it up an end so they can use it as a gallow. cooler heads prevail and reed is allowed to live but he's banished from the wagon train his wife and his children can stay he cannot do you remember the death by banishment in batman dark knight rises walk out on the ice oh yeah same thing same thought process it is now a race now more than ever to beat the snow in the sierra nevadas the donner uh george donner is now the leader of the party. So it is now officially the Donner Party. How much of a rush they're into when an old immigrant is actually kicked from the Keysburg wagon because he is unable to walk and keep up with the party. The man is seen last sitting on the side of the road as everyone passes him. To make matters worse, 
neighboring Paiute tribes kill 21 cattle with poisoned arrows. Oh, God, they just can't catch a break. The party has now lost over 100 heads of cattle on the trip, and they can actually hear the Paiutes laughing at them as they cross the river. Shouldn't have took the shortcut. Right. Big idiots. After the Paiutes kill the, the cattle, the relief party that actually sent, they sent to California, well, they actually return with food. It's probably the first good news they've had forever. One of the men returns and said news ahead of that there's seven pack mules full of food, and they even find two Miwok Native Americans to be scouts. Because really, they only have one real scout left in the party. It's kind of the disadvantage of breaking off from 500 people. Um, there's not as many scouts, especially when the scouts you were told about climbing, they told you not to take this route. Uh, they don't like to, yeah. Uh, his name is Stanton. He will come important later. It takes a lot of food to keep 80 plus people plus cattle alive. So the food itself does not last that long. Food and game begins to become very scarce. They're at the point where they're ready to start killing their already dwindling cattle. And even the horses, if they don't find more food. They're already hungry, starving, dehydrated from passing the desert. That took up a lot of resources. On Halloween, October 31st, more bad news. George Donner's wagon tongue, or his axle, breaks. They're in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and he needs to stop to make a new wagon. The party trail is on a couple miles, but they kind of have to stop. They're about a thousand feet away from the summit. Donner cuts his hand while building his front axle. So that delays them longer. John Bream would write in his diary, quote, we pushed on as fast as our failing cattle would carry our almost empty wagons. At last, we reached the foot of the main ridge near Truckee Lake. It was sundown. The weather is clear, but a large circle put around the moon indicated an approaching storm. They camped that night near a tall summit, waiting for the Donners to catch up, and it begins to snow. There too late the next morning there are five feet of snow on the ground oh could you imagine going to bed and waking up oh my god what was in their mind what were they thinking i think they're thinking we're exhausted because i mean yes it's very fun it's it's very easy to poke like to make fun of jig of uh, reed um there's 80 plus innocent people who just took wrong directions right they trusted him because he was the they elected him the leader yes and then oh just kidding and literally everything went wrong and now there's five feet of snow on the ground it's like the icing on the cake so they're gonna try to make one last push they need to climb up a thousand foot summit essentially with their oxen quote despair drove many nearly frantic the farther we went up the deeper the snow got the wagons could not go. Mules kept falling down in the snow head first, and the Indian said that he could not find the road. The women were so tired 
from carrying their children, they could not go over that night. They try to push as hard as they can, but once the snow comes up to the oxen's chest, they are forced to turn back. The worst possible thing of an early snowstorm happens. The next morning, the route is completely blocked. They're 150 miles away from California, from a starting point of 2,500 miles. Oh my God, so close. So close. The PBS documentary I watched for this, that David McCullough does it, and he's fantastic. Everyone, everyone loves David McCullough narrating. He puts it in a way they took a seventh-month journey, and they missed their deadline by one night. Yeah, that's true. If they would have just got over that summit, right? Right. Like, literally, three days to debate uh, to take the just route. Just two days. If they would have just decided right away. One day. One day would have done it. And then you think, like, if that child, if uh, Breen didn't break his leg, if his it would have only taken, break. if it, what's that? If his wagon didn't break. If his wagon didn't break, if it only would have taken two days, like Hastings said it would, if they wouldn't have needed to find Hastings for five days, like, we've already counted up, like, ten days worth of, like, two weeks worth of time. The other 400 in it. 80 wagons are already in California. Sure are. They, they made it. We're not talking about them. Snow continues for the next eight days. What do you do at this time? Nothing. Like, do you sit in your wagon and just stare? Nothing. You're already starving. Like, it's dire. It's really bad. The first week of November, near Sutter's Fort, they wait for the Donners to come out and only to find James Reed comes out of the mountains. Reed is almost immediately sensing that his family is in very real danger, and he starts his way, his way up to the mountains. Because remember, James Reed being out of the party is actually a good thing at this point, because he's the only one that knows they haven't made it yet. He gets, He comes up with his own traveling party his own relief party to go see if they're up in the mountains he gets within 12 miles of Truckee lake which is now the winter camp for the donners before he's forced to turn around for more supplies and he tries to find more men to make the trip but when reed returns to sutter's fort he asks for another party to head back into the mountains but this time there is no able-bodied man to go because the United States declared war on Mexico and everyone went down south. A relief <laughs> party will be forced to wait until they come back from war. I'm starting to sense everything that could happen happened. The worst possible scenario. It's like a big joke. Not to them. <laughs> I mean, someone... It's com it's comic. It's one of those things where it is, it's so horrible. You can't help but laugh. They don't have good news at all. I I liken it to like where you get trapped outside and it's just like, it's not. It's just pouring down rain and you're already drenched. So then right. you just sit there and let yourself get like just drenched even more, like the whole time. And then you just sit there and thinking to yourself like, "Yep." This is it. 
Mm-hmm. It's my life right now. And then you get mugged. <laughs> and oh, and you haven't eaten dinner yet either. And you haven't eaten dinner for like two weeks. I mean, at least they could melt the snow for water. <laughs> yeah, but you need food. Oh, you need a fire. <laughs> yeah, you can build a fire. The up So up in Truckee Lake, there's two different parts. There's two different camps. The Donners are staying at uh, Alder Creek. Uh, the Graveses are staying at Truckee Lake, where there's actually an old abandoned cabin that they can stay at. But At least they have like a shelter. Barely, though. Right. Like, it's not even... The Donners are essentially staying in a tent. And they're going to be there... Like, nobody can get in the mountain. Somebody described... Where they were at, the only thing that could get out is if it had wings. When they go to go for hunting parties, they can't find anything. Maybe a rabbit here, maybe a squirrel, maybe small creatures. But there's no deer. There is nothing that is going to sustain 80 people who are now trapped in this mountain. The best they can hope to do is hope that the snow crusts over enough that they can start walking out. But that's it. They still have their ad- they still have their cattle which are bare bones at this point. They had been walking across the country. They just went through a desert. Everything we just talked about. There's n- these are not beefy cows. Same thing with the oxen, but you're not going to kill the oxen cuz once you do there's no moving. There's right. no moving once you kill the oxen. They initially try to fix try to fish at the nearby lake, but all attempts come up empties. Again, when they go out on hunts, nothing comes up. On one occasion, though, a man named Eddie actually comes in contact with a grizzly bear. And typically, whenever we hear bear in this podcast, we tend to make fun. Like Wild Bill going after the bear, that's stupid. Daniel Boone and David Crockett, also silly and this point you have to go after it right like there's no i mean it's a big bear it's that will feed you that will that's a lot of meat so eddie approaches the bear and he levels his musket but he loads two shots he puts one in his teeth just in case he shoots the bear and it didn't drop so now eddie has to scramble behind a tree and load his gun as fast as he can And just wait. And he waits. And he waits. Until the bear comes around the tree. And as it is about to swipe him, Eddie shoots the single shot he has. And it hits the bear in the chest. Luckily, the bear dropped dead. First thing that happened to him. (laughs) But just in case. Eddie finds a big stick and just starts beating the bear repeatedly to make sure it's dead. <laughs> oh, and in case the, the, the stick, uh, he then jumps on it like a trampoline for a couple times, which I understand the stick. I understand the stick, but uh, jumping on the bear, if it is alive, is that going to jumping on it going to do anything? <laughs> right. uh, 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 uh. Uh, right. <laughs> I cut you off there. What were you saying? Oh, I just said he was jumping on it to tenderize the meat. Yeah. The bear meat only lasts them a couple of days. Their cattle stock 
is dwindling, not only from dying, but some just get lost in the snow. Twice they try to pass the summit, but they fail. But on Thanksgiving, it snows again. By early December, most of the cattle were either butchered or lost in the snow. The party is forced to boil bones, eat bark, uh, the ox hides. They would put ox hides into strips and then boil it into a jelly. Ox and bone, uh, horse bones from ox that have died were boiled repeatedly to make a soup. Some of the children from the Murphy family picked apart an ox hide rug that lay in front of their fireplace, roasted it on the fire, and then had to eat that. Between the snowstorms, the two camps would ride mules back and forth so that they could at least keep a clear path to each other six miles apart. They send to make, uh, and they tend try to help each other out as much as they can. But for the first two weeks of December, they try to find the healthiest people that are still in the camp. And they volunteer that they're going to have to now go out and get help. They're at the point where they have to get, they have to start killing the oxen for food. So they need to send a party on foot? Yes. Uh, oh, 150 miles? Uh, they only, they think that there's a place called Johnson's farm that is six days away. So 30 miles. So, but the big part is getting up a summit. So what they try to do is they gather 17 volunteers, including Sarah, her sister, her brother, and her father, and then also her husband, Jay. And they find 17 people to make snowshoes from old wagon parts very heavy wagon parts to attach to their feet to climb up a thousand feet summit and then go find another hopefully 30 mile trip to Johnson's farm. So you're tired, you're hungry, you have to travel over 30 miles and you have to attach heavy, heavy wagon equipment to try and get through the snow. Uh, Two more bits of bad news. One, there's 17 people. They only have enough material to make 15 snowshoes. So that's a bummer. The bigger bummer is they actually misjudge their route. Johnson's farm is actually 65 miles away. It's twice as long as they thought. It's double. Yes. And it's not like it's smooth traveling to get there. It's rocky. It's literally a mountain range. To walk in these snowshoes that you just talked about, you just hinted at, it takes an incredible amount of energy to walk up a thousand feet or 14 miles, like that's a thousand feet up. It's a 14 miles to the summit. It takes them two days to get to the summit just so that they can go back down it. During which they only, only in the snowshoes step down about a foot. The two without the snowshoes, some of the times the snow goes up to their waist, so they have to head back. They can't make it. Those with heavy wagon parts attached to their feet only go down a foot, and that's the easy way to go. Keep in mind, does do anyone who skis understands that you put the goggles on if you're going to be outside while skiing for a while, not because wind getting in your eyes, it's because you can go snow blind. 
pretty quick. It takes them two days to get there. They've already had two days worth of damage to their eyes. Keep in mind, they haven't had a full meal in probably two or three weeks at this point. With that said, do you remember their main guide, Stanton? Really the only last one. He's not in the best shape, but he's what they have. Out of anyone in the party, he has to go on the, with the snowshoe party so that they can find their way there. Stanton's eyes are likely already permanently blinded by the snow after the two days. By the time they get over the summit, he's likely even suffering from delirium. They're five days out, and then when they're ready to take off, Mary Ann Graves, so Sarah's sister, sees Stanton laying on the snow, kind of as I picture him, literally with his hands behind his head, smoking his pipe. She asks him if he is coming, and he just simply says that he would catch up with them later. Mary Ann left him, and Stanton is found five months later dead in the same place. So he was just, did he just give up or was he just so like delirious that he just didn't know what was going on? Probably the delirium. It probably is. So the main, the main source that I use, I, I cannot um, recommend this book enough. It is called the indifferent stars above by Daniel James Brown. He goes into a lot of the science that they went through. So like hypothermia setting in when likely they started having delirious thoughts. It's very, very good. So uh, Matt's not to like ruin anything for you, but before we started recording today, I actually went on and recorded a little blurb saying that we were going to not tell you what was the Donner party. So we had a little inside joke and we, we talked about the book, but um, I'll send you that link uh, before we end today. So he really was like laying in the snow, smoking a pipe. Yes. I mean, Go Prob- on what you love, I guess. <laughs> what they, what Daniel James Brown, if I remember right, he's probably like when you're suffering from hypothermia, I believe it is, your body has this final rush of heat that makes you believe that you're fine. And he thinks that's probably what he was going through. Or he just knew he couldn't go on longer and he was just going to have a smoke before he died. Dang. So they have to go the rest of the journey without their guide. Yes. Which immediately they get lost. I was, was going to say they, they, they get lost. I, I have a feeling. On between Christmas and New Year's, New Year's Day, it begins to snow again. The snowshoe party is outside the camp, effectively out in the wilderness, not effectively in the wilderness. Their food runs low and runs out. They keep fire by setting literally entire trees on fire. In fact, there's a section where they actually lose the head of their tomahawk to like start kindling and all of that. Um, And it causes them to panic, like a literal panic over the head of a tomahawk. They're forced to, during the blizzard, to sit underneath blankets. And then there was a big blanket over that where someone would literally be standing in the middle to make a tent. And that's how they they were like take turns or what? 
Yes. I think eventually they did find like a piece to like prop it up. But for the most part, somebody is standing in the middle so that they have some protection from snow that is falling out. Then they would set a tree on fire to keep warm, repeat that pattern until, well, until the snow stops. They can do nothing but sit around. Basically, I mean, I, this, I'm not trying to make this sound like a joke, but they're literally sitting in a blanket fort waiting to die. There's nothing you can do. You're out of food. There's nothing. Then Patrick Dolan suggests probably what they had all been thinking about. Patrick suggests that they may need to kill someone in order so that the rest could stay alive. As Eric kind of touched at the beginning of the episode, um, some topics might be a little rough. Um, we are about to get into that. Again, we don't go into graphic detail. Um, it might just be uncomfortable for some viewers um, with the topic. So if you would like to go ahead and skip ahead, that's fine. Just skip to the one hour and seven minute mark, and that should be good. Thank you. Marianne Graves would recall later, quote, even the wind seemed to hold its breath. The suggestion was made that if one of us, that if one of us were to die, the rest might live. Then a suggestion was made that we cast lots, that whoever drew the longest slip would be the sacrifice. Slips of paper were prepared. And one by one, the long slip is the bad one. Sarah, short slip. Marianne, short slip. Her brother, short slip. Her father, short slip. Her husband, short slip. The man who drew the long slip was Patrick Doland, the one who initially suggested the idea. Oh, no. That's just the way it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sometime, so they're, they're not going to kill anyone yet because, honestly, they don't have the heart to do it because that's seriously the final step right but uh patrick dolan now has to mentally believe that he is the next meal soon after another team a teamster that was along with the party one of the two single men that are with it antonio was resting by the fire and his hand falls into the flame of the fire thinking he's sleeping somebody quickly removes it but when it happens a second time, they know Antonio is gone, that he's dead. Franklin Graves isn't far behind Antonio. He is in the arms of his two daughters, who tells his daughters that he will need to be used for food, and he urges them to survive. As soon as he dies, Sarah's brother Patrick dice after so in rapid succession three of them die right antonio their dad and their brother and their brother patrick dolan again is broken mentally after he draws that long strip not only does paranoia set in he lasts a few more days 
but after suffering from starvation, malnutrition, and hypothermia, he last goes out in a bit of delirium. He strips off all his clothes and runs into the snow outside outside of the blanket. So he's now dead. Finally, the snow stops, and William Eddy restarts the fire. And they start to prepare the dead, specifically Patrick Dolan. They're unable to look each other as they turn around in their makeshift tent, and they eat, and they cry. They then prepare the rest of their dead for provisions in order to make the rest of the journey. They camp, They dub the place the Camp of Death, and they take off. In the next two days, they make 11 miles, so five miles, five, six miles a day. Then they start to get past the snow line, and they find themselves on top of a canyon and have to figure out how to get to Johnson's farm. They believe just across the canyon, so down the canyon, the bottom, and then back up the canyon. You go over that, they're going to be at Johnson's farm. So they decide by January 1st that they're going to start going down the canyon. They stumble in the snow on the steep climb down, and they're even sometimes even able to use their snowshoes as sleds, which is probably the easiest part of the entire journey at this point. They get to the bottom of the canyon, rest up for a night, and then they start climbing the other side of the canyon, now using the snowshoes as kind of like a ladder going into the some of the some of the steeper parts. So putting the snowshoe in part of the snow, climbing up, taking a step, repeating that. Just as they're about to run out of food and they start to debate if the two native scouts that are with them, if now they need to be food next, if they're going to be the next to go. William Foster actually warns the two men because they're basically planning to ambush to kill them because honestly, they're the two outsiders. They're the most in danger from the party. The natives leave before they're able to do it. William Eddy then finds deer tracks and the group simply celebrates finding the trail. When they go on the hunt and they kill the deer, Sarah is unable to because her husband, Jay, is unable to walk and the party basically decides that he has to be left. Oh no, it's her husband. Jay dies in Sarah's arms a short time later. He is now the third family member to die in the horseshoe party for Sarah. When Sarah catches up with the party, the group probably just bluntly asks if they can use Jay. There are now seven survivors in the horseshoe party, five women and two men. But now they're getting below. They're already below the snow line for some time. The rocky terrain actually makes it easier to travel without the snowshoes. However, it's rocky and it tears through their shoes. So they're essentially walking barefoot through a mountain range. They end up leaving a trail of blood behind them from walking in the drays. They travel for a few days when finally they find human footprints. Oh my God. I could just... I could just picture the, the relief. The, it leads to a native tribe, and the tribe takes them in. 
the party stay with them for a couple of days, and then the tribe takes them to Johnson's farm. And finally, on January 27th, six weeks after they start, they're at Johnson's farm. It's a five-day journey. And it was six weeks later when they get there. But as far as Sarah is concerned, she's rescued. Her sister, Marianne, is rescued. There were 10 men that came out and five women. All five women survived. Only two of the men survived. And the book, The Indifferent Stars Above, can't talk about it enough. He even talks about some of the science behind that. Most in these survival situations, most men are actually the first to die because they burn more calories. They tend to maybe push themselves farther than they should. If you just go with traditional gender roles back in this time, the women were expected more to stay in and make sure everything was fine, while the men would go out and hunt and all that. So in most of the survival stories, take a good bet on the women surviving a lot more than the men. But the thing is, like you said, so the five women, like they're, so they started this as a party to go get help, right? Mm -hmm. So like, they're not going back. They're done. Yeah, they're going to, they can't go back. They're like, uh, yay, we made it to California. Essentially, well, like the whole point is for them to get help because the travel, the road they're on is no longer Hastings Cutoff. It's still a traveled route. Like all the wagons were right. past Truckee Lake and Alder and Alder Creek. They 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 went through the shortcut and got back on the trail right. before the snow hit. Right. So people can find them. It's just they don't if they don't know that they're up there outside of James Reed. And I'm sure right. James Reed is telling everyone he can that hey, there's 80 there's people a war up going here. on. Yeah, but he literally can't he can't go back up because what are you going to, what good does a one person relief party do? Right. What is he going to do? He's going to get there and say hi. Exactly. He can just join them. Essentially is all he can do. Now he's with his wife and his child and his children, but what good is that? It's now one more person to feed. Is, is the graves mom still alive? She's at the site. So she's still on the summit. Okay. So she, she still has her mother and her up there. She still has her mother and uh, Sarah still has her mother and her and, and a younger brother up there. Okay. So it's not like the family's out of the woods. Like they still have family up there. There's still 40 people up in the mountain. Right. On January 10th, the Americans take Los Angeles. So California is now effectively an American territory. James Reed leaves from San Francisco to start a party to go back up into the mountains. Cause now there's now men that can go back up into the mountains. While James Reed is gathering his party, Johnson's farm sends man to Sutter's fort to gather supplies for a relief party to go up. So there's going to be two separate relief parties that are going into the mountain. About the first week of about the week of February 5th, the first relief party sets out for the Donners. James Reed is only two days behind. Back at the summit, it was about as depressing as the snowshoe party. On Christmas Day, Margaret Reed, so Joseph's wife, is able to save enough food for his children to ha- for her children to have basically a pot of soup. 
it is really going to be the last meal, true meal they're going to have until the relief party gets there. By that time, by the time they get to the relief party going back into the mountain, they're eating ox hides that is literally serving as their roof because they have nothing else to feast on. On February 17th, the first relief party comes over the summit. They take a day to get down, but when they arrive, a man would recall, and this is kind of a long quote, so bear with me, quote, near the sunset, we crossed Truckee Lake and came to a spot where we had been told that we should find the immigrants. We looked all around, but no living thing except ourselves was in sight. We raised a loud hello, and then we saw a woman emerge from the snow from a hole in the snow. As we approached, her and several others made their appearance in a manner coming out of the snow. They were gaunt with famine, and I cannot forget the horrible ghastly sight they presented. The first woman spoke in a hollow voice, very much agitated, and asked, Are you men from California? Do you come from heaven? End quote. The rescuers find that 12 men have died. They find their bodies covered up in quilts in the snow. So far, the survivors hasn't needed to eat their dead yet. The first relief party then has a morality compass nightmare because they're only allowed to take up to 24 immigrants back with them. So now they need to decide who can make it. They need to decide who is able to make it back with James Reed a couple days later and who just isn't going to make it. Keep in mind, they also know that they can't leave that much food at the campsite. Because they needed to get back. They need to get back. And if you think of it, Johnson's Farm is not a Walmart super center. They're not prepared to feed 60. It's literally a family farm. They butcher some cattle and they get some like some as much food as they can gathered up. But the whole point is to get up into the mountain, get the people and get them back as fast as they can. Right. So they can't leave that much food with them. So they take, they take 24, 31 remain on the summit. The Breams, the Donners, which by the way, George is sick with a hand infection from when he was making his wagon tongue and his wife Tamsin refused to leave the side. On February 26th, Patty Reed, eight-year-old Patty Reed, volunteers to stay with her three-year-old brother Thomas, who is too small to walk through the huge drifts. Margaret, her mother, has to go. So they have to leave the eight-year-old and the three-year-old, separate them from their mother, and take. Patty says to her mother, quote, well, Ma, if you never see me again, do the best you can. Uh. Luckily, spoiler, because this has been depressing enough, all of the reeds are going to make it. So they're the the daughter and the son are gonna are gonna live, and However, the mom, and the mom, the reeds, and the breams are actually the two families that actually make it out whole. Two children on the relief party, though, do die on their way back. Then they come across James Reed on his second relief party. James Reed meets with his wife for the first time since his banishment, and he hears that his children are safe and alive but they need to go find Thomas and Patty. 
The second relief party reaches the summit, but 10 immigrants have died just in that quick couple of days. Surviving immigrants, they can no longer wait for food and they had to start living off of their dead. So everyone that lay, everyone that stayed behind in the camps had to start eating the dead. They had to start preparing the dead. The second relief party leaves with 18 more immigrants. Travel is slow enough that Reed actually sends two men ahead to relieve a, a cache of food to bring it back uh, back to the party because some members are just not going to make it. And keep in mind, you also can't just feed these people all of the food you have because it's going to be a literal shock to their system. I was, I was, I was literally just thinking about that. Like, it's not like you can just have a full meal. Like no, when you you're, haven't eaten in a long time, your stomach's all like different. And you, if you eat too much, you probably throw up. You're probably right. sick already. Yep. But they do get them food. A third relief party comes up. They collect some immigrants. And as they're coming back down, a blizzard. Oh. It forces the relief party to camp for 10 days. Five-year-old Isaac Donner freezes to death. James Reed nearly dies. Mary Donner's feet were so frostbitten that she didn't realize that she was sleeping with them in the fire. So her feet are gone. Yeah. When the storm passed, the Breen and the Graves family were too weak to get up and move, not having eaten for days. And Sarah's mother dies while in the encampment. Uh, what about their bear, their brother? He is gone too. So it's just the two sisters. Yes. When the third party reaches the bottom of the mountain, there are only seven survivors. By the second week of Abel, a fourth relief party goes back up, but there's only one survivor in the party and it's Lawrence Keysburg. Keysburg is lying on a top of human remains. Tamsin and George daughter Donner are now dead. Tamsin's body can't be found. And Keysburg is found with $225 worth of gold on him. They obviously start to suspect that he killed the Donners for the money. Keysburg's story claimed that Tamsin Donner, so George's wife, George had died earlier and that she was going to go out and see her children. On the way there, she slept, she slipped into a creek and was chilled and died that night. Keysburg claims that before Tamsin died, she told him where she was hiding money and to promise him to make sure that the money got to her surviving children. Honestly, we don't know if this is true. We can speculate. I tend to think. I don't think we can talk about if there's rational minds here. What is he going to do with $225? Right. I mean, he doesn't even know if he's going to make it out alive. He will go on trial. He is acquitted. But that rumor, like in the, the newspapers are pretty merciless to him. Um, they pretty much. The, the biggest question, did he give the gold to her, their surviving children? Yes. Well, he was kind of caught. I mean, if his whole plan had to. Yeah. Yeah. When Keysburg is returned, everyone was out of the mountain. 48 survivors 
47 dead. Half the party didn't make it. Of the 87 that initially went, entered the Wasatch Mountains at the start, the children of Jacob Donner and George Donner and Franklin Graves are orphaned. William Eddy is alone. Most of the Murphy family have died. Only three mules reached California. The remaining animals died. Sarah ends up remarrying one of the members from the relief party, but unfortunately, he is accused of stealing mules a couple years later and is hung. Sarah marries a couple years after that, uh, has some children, but unfortunately, she dies at age 46. A few of the widowed women remarried quickly within a few months, as there's a lot of single men in California. The Reed settled in San Jose, and two of the Donner children actually live with them. Reed fared pretty well off in the California gold rush and became prosperous. News of the Donner Party's fate spreads pretty quick by a man named Samuel Brennan, who ran into one of the relief parties as they came down from the pass with Keysburg. Accounts reached New York as soon as July 1847. Several newspapers, including those in California, wrote of the cannibalism in a graphic exaggeration of what actually happened. In some printed accounts, members of the Donner Party were actually depicted as heroes, and members uh, California as a paradise worthy of significant sacrifices. So depending on what newspaper you wrote, they were either grizzly cabbages or look how great California is. People are willing to die to get here. Immigration, after news of the Donners, abruptly halts for a couple of years until gold is discovered in 1848. Hastings Cutoff is abandoned, obviously. Truckee Lake becomes one of the first tourist sites in the West. Relics such as buttons, wood shavings become popular items for overseers to take. Patty Reed would take a lock of her grandmother's hair and a tiny doll and kept for her death until 1931. And she was the last surviving member of the Donner Party. Hastings himself dies after making his own a new emigrant's guide, this time of Brazil. He dies trying to establish himself in South America. And that is the story of the Donner Party and Sarah Graves. I think now we need to rank them. That's a tale. <laughs> like, I think we all hear of the Donner Party growing up and we think of it as not funny, but like morbid kind of humor. And once you get to the story, it's not funny at all. Well, it's like, it's like you said, like, is there anything else left to do? But like, go, what else is happening? It's like one of those times, like when you're at a horror movie and you hear people laughing, like, well, obviously there's crazies that laugh at killing, right. but it's just like, are you serious? Right. Because it's so hard to believe that it's actually happening. It's gallows humor. And yeah, I just, I, I don't think Sarah is going to do well in any of the rounds. Cause this, this just isn't the type of story that's going to do well. I, so I think it's in, as far as she goes, it's, I mean, she did have an arduous task. I mean, being one of the 17, but like, I think it's her story is mainly, I, I feel overshadowed by like the events that took place. Yes. 
she's like she very was, much it, it's her story, but all of a sudden she's a side character. She is a side of character. What is happening? Yeah. I mean, to be if you know of the like you know of the Donners, you don't know of Sarah Graves. The reason I went with Sarah Graves was to kind of do a little bit of a a reveal to you. Um, and also it was just kind of a different take because we all know the Donner party. Um, let's let's talk about someone else other than the Donner party. Um, right. And let's again, try and see what another person was like. Right. Now, we didn't talk much about Sarah. So to say that she's the main character in here is mm, probably stretching it. But um, so I guess we can kind of have a debate. Do we want to judge the Donner party as a whole or do we just want to focus on Sarah Graves? I would say um, the party as a whole. Okay. Uh, on the episode, I'm going to put Sarah Graves on the Donner party. And actually for the episode, I am going to put Sarah Graves uh, as far as our ranking goes, but we are judging her as a party. So our first round, are you satisfied? This is our biography round. We're going to be handing out scores 10 a between negative 10 and 10, 10 points a piece on if we liked her story or not. To say liked their story, that's right. a little... <laughs> this uh, is a very different... This is not really say... a positive or negative. Think of it as... I'm thinking of it as just like the reverence. So like Leonardo DiCaprio surviving. Like that's mm -hmm. what we need to, to look at it on. I was going to say, as far as the story goes, it was extremely interesting. And it was interesting to see or hear... Um, how people or what people will do to survive right how far they can push themselves right um i was honestly fascinated i really enjoyed i enjoyed air quotes enjoyed um i'm gonna go eight. eight i really i really thought it was interesting um you know to be honest i didn't know much about the donner party um i i've heard the name obviously um Maybe it was just a brief glance over in the uh, the history classes, but I can't believe I when you heard of the Donner Party, it's look at this look at this team that took the wrong turn, and right. they're almost it's like, like the clear cut story of why you right. follow the freaking Pat. It's almost like it's not, but like it kind of reminds me of. Not a fairy tale, but like a story you tell your children of this is why you do things the right way. This right. is why you don't deviate. It's that type of story. Right. Um, I think eight's a good score. I don't think I'm going to go quite as high as eight, but I don't, I'm not going to go much higher than much lower than it. Um, this one's just really hard to score because it's very different from normal stories we have. So I'm going to go 6.5 because I think that's a fair score. For the Donners that brings the Donners score up to 14.5 next round be sure you are right then go ahead this is our morality round again Matt and I are going to be handing out negative 10 points to positive 10 points apiece depending on how well we think they were morally the only thing okay so there were un tough. I think there were unmoral people right so I don't think he should. I mean, I am with them when they said Reed killed that guy. Right. I think what's difficult is you're trying to judge 80 people in as if they're one. Right. So you almost need to look either at the actions of the party. I don't think there's anything they did that was immoral. 
-hmm. other than yes you could say james reed killing snyder absolutely after that i'm not going to penalize them for cannibalism i mean they had no option it was that that or death they didn't kill anyone they were eating like their roof and bark off trees i mean they had literally no choice if this was hastings really low score like negative seven six seven some somewhere in that range i don't think i mean they all wanted to survive like there was kind of this 17 people went out to go save the rest of the party right. right but did they like they don't have a choice so like you're kind of forced that into that choice. Year old stayed with her brother. Right. So her mom could go. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I don't think it's like I'm gonna do I'm gonna say like a five. Yeah. There. I mean, I don't it like you said, it's hard to judge a whole group of people, right? right. And they really didn't do like yeah. They were trapped for months. When did they when did the snowfall um shortly after Halloween, Halloween right? Halloween. Halloween, yeah. So October, no, or November, December, January, four months. Yeah, February, April 7th. I think April is when Keysburg is pulled out. Oh, no, no, yeah. Oh, yeah, so. But he's the April. last. Well, yeah, but I mean, you can say like it took until April to get right. everybody out. And it wasn't, it wasn't smooth sailing getting there. Like, I think everyone thinks, oh, they got stuck in the mountains and that's when all their troubles began. It was months worth of tr- everything was fine until they took Hastings cut off. And then they the had entire out- rest of the caravan. What was it? Uh, how many vehicle or uh, 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 the Donners and the them, gone? the Donners themselves, that party had 20, including so the it was 180 in the main group, right? Uh, well, I don't remember how much is in like the, that specific, but 500 wagons to cross the plains that year is the number you keep saying. Oh, uh, okay. So yeah, every yeah everyone had made it, right? Except them. Except them, because they took a wrong. Because they because they were given bad. They were they were given bad information because well, Hastings gave them bad information, but then Kleiman warned them. Seriously, don't take this. But it was right. one man's decision to take that route. Right. When essentially they were on time a week, like two days out from Fort Laramie at fourth. That's not like a week, even a week later. That's not bad. <laughs> like the goal is not exactly the 4th of July. It's around the 4th of July, for God's sake. You know, you travel 20, 30 miles a day right. to get there anywhere near the 4th of July. Thumbs up. You're doing Yay, well. We did it. We're doing it. And they got, they got there early. Yeah. The Graves is dead. Then they had to wait one right one day late Mm. heartbreaking literally you can point out five or six different points of they they just could have said it up yeah like they if they would have waited four days to go find hastings when they first entered the the wasatch Mm. Uh, just it's literally hours if George Donner doesn't cut his hand making a wagon tongue the night of Halloween. I know. So I guess you get to give your score. I'm going to give them. Boy, it's tough. I'm going to give them a four. 
I can see a lot of different scores. It's very difficult to judge them. It really is. Next round, to hell with the consequences. This is our crazy or clever round. We're going to be handing out negative 10 points if we think they're more on the crazy side, and 10 points if we think they're clever. No I'm going to go... I, I'm going to say two, because the they did fashion that uh, those snowshoes. So yep. I think that's pretty clever. Yep, I'm trying to think of other... <sighs> but then they were stupid. Oh, well, they weren't crazy, though. Well, like... I... I don't know if they were stupid. They were given bad advice and then they took a route that they shouldn't have, but it was still, it really comes down to like, I don't want to say pick your sources, but if Hastings doesn't make that GD book that gets the idea in their head to take a shortcut, they're not going to go because Hastings didn't even look at his route. He literally just looked at it on a map and said, yeah, that seems good enough. Like it can be done, right? Yeah. Yeah. It can essentially. Yes. Okay, good. We'll figure out the details later. It literally killed 47 people. Literally killed 47. So I... I don't think you can call them crazy. I don't think you can call them clever. I, I think two. I think two solid are. I'm going to join you there. So that brings them up to four for To Hell With The Consequences. And here we're going to lock their score. So because they are at positive points which right now is at 27 total points. We're going to keep adding points to their score. If they had been negative scores, we would have kept subtracting points from them. And then our next round, draw. So how well would Matt and I do, or how screwed are we, in a duel with the Donner Party? I don't know, man. I think it's a I zero. Mean, no, like, <laughs> they're all, yeah, they're all uh, settler, settlers, I guess, right? Moving out. I mean, no one's there to kill anybody. Do we give them points for survivors? Like, they have more endurance than we would have. So, I yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know how long I would. Be. I, I, you're when you when you're you're driven to the the brink. There, you can do a lot, right? I'm giving them a point. I was just gonna. I was gonna say, I, I, let's do a point. Let's do a point. Good, because I actually wrote down you as one point too before you said that. So <laughs> we're, we're synced. <laughs> legacy how well known are they so we're only going to be handing out points from zero to ten on basically how well known they are i have to assume they're known right i think it's one of the more well-known names we're going to have i don't think it's like top tier but they're well known north of five for sure probably higher than that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do six and a half. I think that's fair. 6.5. I'm going to go a little bit higher. I'm going to go probably seven and a half for that because I don't. I don't know why I always go back to Tecumseh as far. Maybe because I'm just bitter and I want him to be more well known. Um. They're well, they're much more well known than Tecumseh. I gave him a seven. Now it was because I wanted to give him a seven, but he, they're more famous than Red Cloud, more infamous. I shouldn't say famous. Uh, see, I'm going to go 7.5. I think that's fair. I think like comparison, people can tell me if I'm, if I'm off base here, but as far as just simply name recognition, I think they're on par with David Crockett and Daniel Boone. <laughs> 
just kind of spitballing that. Mm-hmm. Um, 14 total points. The next couple rounds, death bonus. We are going to be handing out up to two points each if we think they had a cool story about their death. And I don't think we can award points here. This is way too depressing to say they had a cool death. Like, it's too depressing. <laughs> no, nothing cool about their death. No. <laughs> like you said, tragic, like awful circumstances. No. Nope. I'm hard zero for me. <laughs> I'm going to assume it's a hard zero from you. You bet. Counting coup. Here we have a debate. So counting forty-seven died. They killed forty-seven. Counting coup. If you're just picking up this episode, we're gonna do their confirmed-ish kills, and then we're gonna divide that number by ten as a bonus point. Typically, this is a much easier category to judge because. While Bill Hickok had seven people, you can count them. It's much easier to judge. Um, do we count all 47? You know, no, you know what we should do? Hmm. One. They killed one person. I think I was going to actually suggest that because it was Snyder. I, I agree with that. If we were judging Hastings, he's getting all of them. Right. Because it's his fault. I agree. And also, like, Reed killing, I do believe Reed killing Snyder. Now, Reed isn't a likable man by any means. I do think that was more self-defense because I I don't think it's above the realm of possibility that somebody was really wanting to find an excuse to harm Reed at that point. He had no friends. He was the reason (laughs) they were there. Hastings was there he would have been killed a long time ago so yes one for Snyder I agree with that wholeheartedly point one of a point which brings their total score up to 43.6 points which is pretty good that actually David Crockett got 46 Point five points. So he, just a couple points uh, lower than David Crockett. I think that's fair. So now I have my coin. I actually keep it near me, so I don't need to hunt for the dang thing. So what are we doing with this coin? So now Eric's going to flip the coin. I'm going to call it whatever it lands on. Whoever was right gets to decide if they want them on their team eric and i have been drafting a team each of all of the um good guys and bad guys we've done and at the end we're going to have a bracket style tournament to decide who is the best each of our teams are 20 people the rest will go into a reserve kind of like fantasy football if you've ever watched or ever played it and we are allowed to drop and add people as we see and we can also trade are you ready i am i'm gonna say tails oh my god and he dropped reflip i was a lineman in football i'm not used to Mm. catching heads 
I should have stuck with tails. I don't know why I said heads. It's tails. Yeah. Frick yeah, I'm going to draft him. I should have just stuck with tails. I meant to stick with tails too, which is hilarious. That's okay though. Just just for hypothetical. Because I did want them. Um, I was going to probably trade you either David Crockett or Daniel Boone. Would you have taken that trade? Those are good ones. I don't know. It's hard to say. I really like. I really like this story. So I probably do too. Uh, I'm I'm open to trades. I'm (laughs) I'm just saying. You you can think. Um, I was willing to give Daniel Boone and David Crockett. You're thinking. I I don't know. Um, I can tell you. I do like Olive Oatman's story. If you're attached to her, but I do do like like her story too. I did like her story too. I don't want Bowie. I don't want Jesse James. I don't want Calamity Jane. Get out of here. So like it, we're, you're, you're running out of people, not Tensko Tawa. So I will accept, I would, I would consider Red Cloud or Billy the Kid, but I don't think you're going to give him Billy the Kid for Donner Party. So Red Cloud is, I will consider for Red Cloud for you to ponder. Didn't you trade me Billy the Kid? I did for a while, Bill Hickok straight well, up for a while, Billy. Yep. Straight up, straight up trade. All right. With that, I think that's all we have on the Donner Party. Let us know what you think. Yes, please leave us a rating or a review. We love to see that, and it helps us out a lot. Also, check out our website, ranking76.wordpress.com. You can find all of our episodes. You can find what teams are. You can find the scores. You can find where we're at on Reddit. You can find where we're at on Facebook. You can find our email address. So everything we have is on this website, ranking76.wordpress.com. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, I do want to do one final plug for the indifferent stars the indifferent stars above by daniel james brown it's not very big it's seriously one of my favorite books now i it, i cannot recommend it enough um go buy it I, I always put the source notes i try to link on amazon if somebody wants to buy it but seriously so good and with that i'm eric and i'm matt and we will see you next time 